There's a lot of war in the world today. And there has been for a very long time. There are wars that are being waged for land. And there are wars that are being fought for property. Tonight, there are wars being fought for intellectual and ideological space and supremacy across the earth. In many ways, these are the, the wars of the world. The, the world. the wars of the world, they are fought between nations, between alliances, between companies, between men and women. These things, these battles, these wars have been going on since the fall of man, and they continue to this very day, to this very moment. We see what's happening right now on the Korean Peninsula with Kim Jong-un. We see what's happening in the Middle East in the fight for the land of Israel. And we see these wars play out in the courts, even here in our own nation, wars and battles being played out in the courts between companies like Apple Computer and Samsung and a host of others as they battle for intellectual property. And we see the battle of ideas being waged on our college and university campi. These battles of ideas even become physical battles themselves, and we see that playing out in our nation even before our very eyes. These are wars where in some of them it's should be fairly easy for the Christian to choose sides. But for some of these conflicts, you can sometimes feel like you're watching a war between foes that you have no commonality with either side. And you say to yourself, well, which side am I on? There is a war, though, tonight that I want to highlight, and I believe our chapter in Genesis does, it's a war that's happening here and across the earth. And this is the most important for the Christ follower to be aware of. You say, what's that? There's a war presently being waged for the souls of men. The major part of that war has been won on the cross of Calvary, where Jesus Christ paid the price. He laid down his life. He paid the ransom for your soul to be freed from the bondage of sin and from being under the principalities and rulers of this in the spirit realm, in the spirit world. But the battle wages on today for those who have not yet pledged allegiance to the Lord Most High, and they have not yet given their lives as a living sacrifice to him. And we see the picture of this battle for the souls of men here in our text tonight. We've come to Genesis 14, and we've come to the first account of warfare in the scriptures. It is not the first war, but it is the first account of war in the scriptures. The war that we're gonna look at tonight is a war between two alliances of kings, 
I don't want you to be confused because if you sat and read this chapter, you might look at it and go, oh, wow, that was a lot of kings, a lot of names, a lot of stuff going on. I have no idea what's going on. And I want to do my best job to, to, to tell it to you, to read it to you tonight in a way that you come away with the sense of what is actually being said here because I think it's relevant to each and every one of our lives. It's, it's an account here in Genesis 14 of, an, of a war between two alliances of kings, the four kings out allied with the king of Elam and the five kings of the plain of Jordan. And so this war goes down and Abram finds himself in the middle of it. Abram finds himself called to arms. Why? Was Abram called to arms to defend his land or to advance on a beachhead? No, he's called to arms because of the soul, a soul of man, a soul of mankind, a soul that was his brother. Lot, his very nephew, was taken, taken hostage in this war. And Lot is his brother. You say, well, you said he's his nephew, but he's his brother in the kingdom. Amen? Amen? Yes. So let's take a look at this first biblical account of war, and let it speak to us of the most important war that we are in right now, a battle for the souls of men. A battle for the souls of men. Let's pick it up in Genesis 14, verse 1. It says this, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, and Ketelamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabar, king of Zoabim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Ketelamar, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Ketelamar and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavah Kiriathim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir as far as El Paran, which is in the wilderness. Then they turned their back and came to En Misfat, that is Kadesh and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwell in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zoboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Ketelamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits. And the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. And some fell there and the remainder fled to the mountains. And then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. It's a battle for the souls of men. This chapter is a chapter 
that when I taught through Genesis for the very first time about 15 years ago, I remembered thinking this chapter would make for an epic movie. If, if you took this chapter, just this one chapter, you could really make a blockbuster movie out of it, an epic movie uh, that would be incredible. And you might agree with me when we get to the end of the, the message tonight. You've got five kings that feel that they are oppressed by this other regime, and so they are going to throw off the guards of their oppressors, only to find that three other kings have allied with this other king, making four kings, and they come out to attack and make war against these five kings that have sought to throw off the shackles of these overlords, if you will. There is an epic scene where the four kings and their warriors meet the five kings and their warriors, and they come to the valley, it says the valley of Siddam. And we have this, this battle here, five kings versus four kings in the valley of Siddam. This is a valley where, if you're reading from the King James, anybody reading from the King James here tonight? No, yes, two. Two of you here, and it said what? Slime pits. The valley of Siddam is where the slime pits are. This is the word that the, the, they chose in the English back in 1611, the, the, the valley of Siddam where the slime pits are. Other, other translators have used other words. The word that we read in there was where the asphalt is. There's other words that are used. And one other word that is used is where the tar is. And, and so there, there were these basically these tar pits in this valley, this valley of Siddam. And uh, Rockefeller, actually, when he was reading his Bible, was reading, he came to this particular portion of Scripture in his, I guess, I don't know if he was reading his daily devotions, but he was reading his Bible, and he, and he said, well, if, if this Bible is true, then there's, there was some tar pits in this area. And if there's tar pits in this area, there must be oil. And it was one of the things that triggered Rockefeller to going into this part of, of, of at that time, Saudi Arabia and other parts leading down into Persia, that, that basically, with that knowledge, he, he became an extremely wealthy man in the oil industry. Why? Because he read his Bible and he used his head. Amen. And so you don't know what you're going to discover when you read your Bible, young people. You're going to read your Bible and you think, ah, I'm not going to read my Bible because there's no good information. Trust me, there's some really great information in here. And it just might make you rich. Amen. And it'll, I, I guarantee you it'll make you wealthy in the spirit. Amen. And may, might, might be physically as well. Rockefeller might attend to that. So there you had these tremendous tar pits. Now keep this in mind when we get to chapter 19. When the Lord is going to rain down fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And can you imagine when, when fire and brimstone are rained down from the heavens on a valley full of tar pits? The, the, the place was destroyed, but I can only imagine that the place burned for days, for weeks, perhaps even months, maybe even years. This place was up in flames and became really a desolate, desolate place. And there are archaeologists who have uncovered the ruined cities of this plain that were never rebuilt. 
So keep that in mind. So this, our text tells us that the alliance with Ketamar, Ketalamar, went out and he attacked the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, and the Horites, the Amalekites and the, and the Amorites. Okay, so I just took all those verses and I just told you all of the uh, uh, initial enemies or, or whatever that they fought at, at, against in this conflict. The, the, the Rephaim, the, the Zuzim, the Emim, the Horites, the Amalekites, the Amorites. Who are these people? Well, these are really the giant clans, the Rephaim. It doesn't take you long to do a study. Do a study in the Old Testament. When you come to the Rephaim, you understand that these are, and especially the Amorites, read in Amos, uh, where it talks about the Amorites, these were the giant clans. Now, when I say that, you say, well, wait a second, the giant clans, and if you were here for our study with Dr. Heiser as he was here teaching Genesis 6, and he talked about that which happened in Genesis 6 and that, which, that mischief of the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim, that produced this race upon the earth, the Nephilim, and there were Nephilim in the land. And you say, now wait a second, D didn't what Heiser said, and doesn't the Bible teach that the flood came, the, the, the waters came to deal with this problem of the Nephilim upon the earth? Why are, there, why are there still Nephilim now? Why is there clans of, 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 of these race of giants? What, what, what is still going on? Of course, when you get to Joshua and the, con, the, the, the conquest of the land of, of uh, the promised land, you find that there are, are giants inhabiting the land. I mean, read Numbers 13 and discover why the 10 of the 12 spies were shaking in their boots when they came back from their expedition to spy out the land. And you say, why? Why are there still these clans of giants? Well, there's, there are some different theories about this. And some believe that there were multiple incursions of the sons of God coming into the daughters of men. Multiple incursions. And there, so, so that would be the multiple incursion theory. There's another theory that states that Nephilim DNA made it onto Noah's Ark. Remember, there were only eight people on Noah's Ark. You say, well, there's a theory that states that somehow Nephilim DNA made it onto Noah's Ark. And how did that happen? Well, one of the theories uh, it, within this group of theories is the theory that the DNA made its way onto the Ark by way of Noah's wife or one of the wives of Noah's sons. The Noah's wife theory is interesting because it would explain some detail in what Ham did with having sex with Noah's wife that we discussed in Genesis 9. And the, here's the theory that, the, that Noah's wife was not the mother of the three boys, that Noah's first wife had died and this was a second wife, not being the actual birth mother of the boys, but then being a stepmother, still being uh, an incest sexual relationship that we saw there in Genesis 9. But that would make it very interesting and kind of draw, kind of connect some dots when you get to the, uh, you know, what happened with the curse on the seed of that particular action, that particular sin of Ham, namely the seed Canaan that was under uh, that lineage was under a curse, and we can see from the lineage of Canaan was this 
uh, which is where the, the, the clans of the giants and the Nephilim begin to, to appear. Namely, under a man named Nimrod that we already discussed back at Babel, and under the clan that came from the line of the Canaanites that actually becomes a major enemy of Israel going all the way through the scriptures, namely the Philistines. And you can go back to chapter 10 and track that down through the table of nations. Okay, so this is interesting. So you have what, what I'm trying to draw out to you that this, there was an epic situation. I mean, really, this needs to, you could do a movie with this chapter. And you have this, 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 this confederacy of these four kings going out, and they're going out against all the Rephaim and the Zuzim and, the, and all this and the Amorites and the Amalekites. And then they finally get down to the plain of Jordan. And they come in and they attack the four king, the five kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela. So you can see that they went from this, this attack, this battle against this, this, these giant clans, and then they come in and attack the kings and the alliance of the, the kings of the plain. And so you can see that this is, this is really something, it's an epic, epic chapter of the Bible, and it really is something that would really be uh, like something out of the Lord of the Rings, Okay, only this is real. Okay, this is real. This is the Bible, and this is actually what happened. So, Ketelamar, you say Ketelamar. When you first read it, you, you want to say Chetelamar, right? Look at it. Am I the only one that thought that? Ketelamar, Chetelamar. It looks like Chetelamar. And if the Veggie Tales did a movie about this particular chapter, <laughs> Not, not the Lord of the Rings guy making a movie, but if Veggie Tales made a movie about this chapter, it would have been Chetelamar, the king of the stinky cheese that went out and made war against the, the, five, the five kings of the plain. So Chetelamar's alliance moves on to defeat the five kings and they take the bounty. They take booty, they take food and they wipe them out. But what sums up this section of scripture that we've just gone through for Abram is verse 12, and I'll have it up on the screen. Genesis 14, verse 12 says this, they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. You know, Abram wouldn't have been drawn into this battle for any of the reasons that King Ketelamar had in mind in terms of what he was after in this whole ordeal. Abram wouldn't have been involved in it in any way, but because of what verse 12 tells us, this changes everything for Abram. Lot was taken. Lot was taken captive. Lot was taken as a hostage. And for this reason, for the Christian, we've got to realize that there are those that have still that are that are still taken. They're still hostage. They're still under bondage of sin and of the enemy. And that's why we need to be engaged in a battle for souls. We need to be engaged in a battle for the souls of men. You say, how? Well, stay with me. Let's let's pick it up back in Genesis. Pick it up, verse 13. It says this. Now then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and 
the brother of Anar. And they were allies with Abram. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Catalamar and the kings who were with him. Christian, we need to realize that there's a battle for the souls of men, and what we need to do and what we need to be about in our lives is engaged in that battle. We need to be engaged in the battle for souls. We're told here that one man escaped from this hostage situation. Okay, I want you to think, if you're not already deep down in the story here, I want you to think about it. Lot has been taken captive, he's been taken, and he's been taken hostage by this confederacy of four kings led by King Ketelamar, and, and can you imagine, and, and Sodom and Gomorrah have been, have been uh, just kind of ravaged in that sense. And so, so he's been taken captive, and there's, there's someone, a man who escapes from the situation, doesn't tell us how he escaped, but he just escaped, and he came to Abram to tell him all that happened and, all, and, and, the, and the, the fact that Lot had been taken hostage. Abram could have just, just as well said, well, you know what, that's not my problem. That's not my problem anymore. Lot and me, we had a falling out. We had strife between us. We had strife between his people and my people had strife. And you know what? It's not my problem anymore. He went down to Sodom. That's his problem. He, I, I knew he shouldn't have gone down there to Sodom. I knew that was a bad choice. I knew, he, I knew why he wanted to go down there. But he went down there anyways. And that's, look, look, that's what he, this isn't what Abraham's response was. Abraham's response was, I've got to do something about my, my brother. I've got to do something about my nephew, Lot, who's been taken, who's been taken hostage. Now, there's something in verse 13 that tells us why Abram couldn't take the position of just kind of being ambivalent to Lot's situation. What's that? Turn back to verse 13. It says this, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew... Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. What is this? This little phrase here tells us why Abram could not sit idly by. Why is that? Because he's a Hebrew. Abram was a Hebrew. He, would, he was a descendant of Eber, which is where the word Hebrew comes from. He was a descendant of Eber, Eber, if you want to, if you want to pronounce it correctly and you know, kind of really give me a hard time about my, uh, my pronunciation on all these names, okay? <clears throat> he was a descendant of Eber, and we went through the, the table of nations, and when it got down to Shem, it said that Shem was the father of Eber, Right? And why did it tell us that? Because Shem was the, 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 the godly kind of wing of the family. He was the priest of the family. Shem became that one that, that kind of carried on the worship of Yahweh and he taught people, 
we learn a lot of this from some of the extra biblical texts that are quoted within the Bible. So, he's a Hebrew. He's a descendant of Eber, who was a descendant of Shem. Now, a little bit about this name, Eber. What does it mean? Eber is a name that means this, a region on the other side. You're gonna, if this doesn't get you tonight, I want this to get you. Eber is, is a region on the other side. A region on the other side situated across a stream or the sea. So Abram is a person of the region on the other side. Abram, the Hebrew. What's that? Did, you, did, did, it, did it click for you yet? Did, did, did you get it yet? Abram, the Hebrew, he's a person of the other side. He's not a person of this side here. He's not a person of this, this terra firma here. He's a person of the other side, of the region on the other side. And because he's a person of the region of the other side, he can't sit idly by when there's a battle for the souls of men. That'll preach. That will preach, and I haven't gotten started yet. Hang on, it only gets better. The derivative of he eber is here in verse 13, ibri. The Hebrew. Eber is the name, a region of the other sides. He breathed the Hebrew, which is translated Hebrew, and we have that here in our text. The very next derivative in the lexicon, if you open up your Hebrew lexicon, the very next derivative of Eber is this word, Abara. Abara. Abara means crossing. Abara is where you cross over and become a part of the people of Eber. Amen? Abara is crossing. In the English, it would be like a ford. A ford was a crossing, right? It's Abara in Hebrew. The place where the Hebrews, the Israelites, eventually crossed the Jordan into the promised land was called, what? None other than Beth Abara. Bethabara is where the Israelites crossed over the Jordan on dry land and set their feet upon the promised land. They crossed over. They became the people that crossed over to the region on the other side of the river. The house, Bethabara, the house of crossing. They crossed over to the other side at Bethabara. What is interesting is that Bethabara... At Bethabara, when they crossed over the Jordan, Israel was instructed to build two memorials of 12 stones at Bethabara. One in the river, one in the midst of the river of 12 stones, and one on the other side of 12 stones. One that would eventually be covered over with the river. See, the river was stopped up, up river, so that the people, nearly two million of them, could cross over into the land of promise, and then at such time as they were all crossed over, then the river was released by the Lord, and it came and would have covered over that memorial of 12 stones that was in the midst of the river. So there was a, a memorial of 12 stones that would then be under the water, hidden under the water of the river, but then there was another 12 stone memorial that was on the land on the other side in the land of promise. And what we can see here with these two memorials of 12 stones is a little peek, a little picture into the two ordinances that Jesus left for the church. One that is hidden and one that is open. 
Again, the river eventually covered over the 12 stones at Bethabara, so it's hidden. The one ordinance of Jesus that is hidden is the one that is that private communion with the Lord, that private communion meal. Tonight, we are going to take part in that 12-stone memorial, the hidden memorial. Why? Because we're not doing this out in the public square. We're doing this tonight. We're doing this behind the closed doors with the family. This isn't, the, the table of the Lord is, is open to anyone who's a part of the family. And you can become a part of the family, but you must become a part of the family. So this is kind of, in, in a sense, it's a closed table. It's a closed table, not because I've closed it, because the Lord has said, in order to come to this table, you've got to be a part of the family. You need to be a part of those who are of the region of the other side. Amen. And so we're going to come to this ordinance tonight, the ordinance of the 12 stones that is in the midst of the river. And then, of course, there's the ordinance of the 12 stones that was on the, the land. And that speaks of the other ordinance that Jesus gave to us, which was the ordinance of baptism. Amen. Now, that is out in the open. That is a memorial that is out in the open. And we'll get back to that. What's interesting Here's where it kind of all comes together. At Bethabara, this exact location is exactly where John the Baptist, stay with me, okay? Stay with me because this will blow the, the classical music right on, right on out between your ears, okay? Bethabara, when John the Baptist came, yeah, John the Baptist. It wasn't just a clever nickname because John came baptizing people. And where did he come baptizing? At Bethabara. He came baptizing at Bethabara. And so when Jesus came down to be baptized, where did he come to? He came down to Bethabara to the crossing. And it's really in that picture of being baptized into the family of God that where we come in and we cross over and we become a part of the family of God. In that sense, we become a Hebrew. And just as Abram, it says Abram the Hebrew, he's a person of the region of the other side, and that's who he is, and that's who we are too. Amen? We are too. People of the other side. Christian, you're a person of the other side. That's what this whole thing that I've just discussed for you, that's why I did all that. You say, well, why were you going through all this and all this? Because I was bringing the background to you, if you're still with me tonight, I'm bringing the background to you of why it is, Christian, that you're a person of the other side. You're not of this world. You're a person of the other side. And that should motivate us. It, it, it's what should get us going. What should get us going is standing for, fighting for the souls of men and helping to get as many to the other side as possible, especially our family. And this is what Abram does. Look at verse 14. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. When Abram heard, when Abram heard that Lot was taken, what did he do? What did he say? Perhaps he said something like this. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. 
If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you that I don't have any money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my nephew go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you and I will find you. He had to have said something like that. Amen. <laughs> no, no, no. Look, 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 people, are you still with me? Look, look, <clears throat> look, 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 look what, look what the verse says. Verse 14. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants. What? With a particular set of skills. Lot was taken, and I'm rising up with 318 with a particular set of skills, a particular training. And I went, and he went in pursuit, and it says he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, that's for people that understand the geography. The writer is actually letting us know the geography of the situation. He went from Mamre, which is in Hebron, and he went up as far as Dan. And if you know the allotment of the, of the inheritance of the land, you know that Dan, the portion of Dan, was in the northernmost section of the, of, the, of the place of Israel. And so Abram and his 318, skillfully trained, went a long way in pursuit against these kings to pursue to go get Lot. And it says they went and they divided up and went in at, at these guys from multiple directions. They went in at night. Again, this needs to be a movie. Trust me. <clears throat> this would be a blockbuster. They go in at night. They divide and conquer. And they conquer the king of Elam, Ketelamar, and these other guys, and they get Lot back. Wow, wow. They get him back. They get Lot back from the situation. Wow. <sighs> Relief. Wow, we, we, got, we got Lot back. We got him out of Sodom. We got, we got, we got, we got him out, of, out from underneath the situation. It's a hostage situation. What a relief. But that's not where the story ends. That's not where the credits roll on this one. It keeps going. It keeps going to where Abram, the Hebrew, pledges allegiance to the Lord Most High in a declaration of who he is as a Hebrew and declaring in his actions and what happens in the subsequent verses that we're going to look at, declaring his allegiance to God most high. Let's pick it up. Verse 18, it says this, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, professor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, 
Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anar, Eskal, and Mamre, let them take their portion. What happens here is one of the great scenes of the Bible where Abram on his trek back from that northernmost point as far as Dan, he's now traversing back and he meets the king of Sodom, comes out to meet him in verse 17 and then verse 18, Melchizedek. This interesting, this, this mysterious man, this mysterious figure comes out to meet Abram on his way back from the defeat of Ketelamar. His name is Melchizedek. He is king of Salem. Melchizedek actually is a name that means king of righteousness. He is the king of what would one day become Jerusalem. He's king of Salem. It would one day be known as Jerusalem. And this is where he's, he's king. Now, now, much has been written about Melchizedek. He's mentioned here in Genesis 14. He's mentioned in Psalm 110, in a messianic psalm, and he's mentioned in the book of Hebrews. The question when you come to Melchizedek, and you could write a, several books, and there's probably hundreds of books and whatever that have been written on the, on the subject, who is Melchizedek? And there are different ideas about who he is. We know that he's a king. We know that he's a priest. We know that he's a king and a priest. Interesting combo. There are some who have suggested that he was a divine figure. When you get to Hebrews, it talks about him not having lineage, not having genealogy. And uh, there are those that make the case and and actually, I took a position on this, actually. I, I actually took a hard and fast position on this about seven years ago when I wrote my book in uh, 2010, Who is Jesus? And I took a position at the end of, of chapter one about Melchizedek. And, you know, in, in, in light of recent study, I stand to p perhaps be corrected um, by the position I took, and that's, that's, that's okay. You know, sometimes we come to things and we say, hey, you know, we, we really think it this way, and then we come uh, later with, you know, through, through deeper study, greater study, exposure to a greater depth of, of information. Um, although at the time, I felt like I was, I was you know, pretty, pretty grounded in, in, in the wealth of information that I had at that time, but this is seven years later, and, and, and there's another layer of stuff that I've been exposed to. But so anyways... One of the theories of who Melchizedek is that is, and, I, and I'm not alone in this, and, and the reason why I took it is because a lot of, of pastors and theologians that I've respected over the years have taken, took the position that, that, uh, that he was a divine figure, that Melchizedek was a, a divine figure. It had been called a Christophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of Christ. And so the, the idea there goes is that Abram, on his way back from this this military defeat of Ketelamar meets, literally meets the Christ uh, pre-incarnate pre in human form, but in, in a divine um, bodily form of some type. 
The other, the other idea would be, and, and there are many that have come to that conclusion, even those um, that reference scrolls that have come out of the caves of Qumran, okay? So those who have taken that position have not been without at least some historical backing of some kind. Uh, the, the other idea there is that, okay, obviously it was a man. It was a man who was obviously a priest because the text tells us that he was a priest. He was a priest of God most high, and he was a king. He was the king of Salem. Now, the, one of the extra biblical, the biblic, one of the biblically endorsed extra biblical texts, you know, I've been talking about these for, you know, you can't go through Genesis without at least dealing with these because you have to deal with Enoch and you have to deal with uh, some of these other books. So there's Enoch and there's Jubilees and there's Asher, uh, Jasher. Jasher is the one that, Joshua quotes famously in Joshua chapter 10, is this not recorded in the book of Jasher? And if you read the book of Jasher, which I have, it seems to say pretty clearly that, that Melchizedek was none other than Shem. And that he was the kind of the head of this, the, the family in that sense, head of the house. And he was the priest that kind of perpetuated and trained up people in the worship of God most high. You say, now, wait a second. Can Shem still be alive with Abram here? Yep, do the math, look at the genealogies. And I took the time to do the math. And sure enough, Shem would have been alive at the time, at this particular point in, in the history. So Melchizedek, whoever he was, he does what a priest does. Anyways, let me just say one thing. The whole idea of the writing of Hebrews, and this is for people who kind of care about this particular point, where it's talking about him not having record of genealogy, no record of father and mother, the best explanation I've heard of that is in Hebrews was because to, in order to be a priest in the Levitical priesthood, a priesthood that does not exist yet on the face of the earth as of this juncture in Genesis 14, in order to be a priest in the Levitical system, you had, to be, you had to prove that you were a Levite. In other words, you had to say, here's my genealogy. Yeah. Okay, sign me up. Okay, so if you couldn't do that, if you couldn't prove that you had Levi genes, <laughs> <clears throat> not from San Francisco, but I'm talking about from Israel. Amen. If you couldn't prove that you had Levi genes, then you couldn't be a Levitical priest. The whole point of what the writer of Hebrews is saying, he didn't have record. There's no record of the lineage because in the mention of Melchizedek in Genesis, it just says Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high. A, he's already a priest. There is no Levitical priesthood, so there must have been another order of priests. And that's why the writer of Hebrews and the Psalm 110 says that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's not in the order of the Levitical priest, the Levi priest. And it is calling us to the original game plan, which we would be kings and priests upon the earth, made as the image in the earth, representing him and becoming that which Adam was intended to be. Yes. Wow. And Christ, who is the second Adam, buying us back 
from the lostness that we had buying us back to that position. Amen. So that's that. <laughs> okay. So let's tie this, tie a bow on this and get to the end, right? So we can roll some cool music and that type of thing. No, so we can come to Bethabara so that we can come to the crossing. He blesses Melchizedek actually mediates relationship with God. He brings out bread and wine. What does that sound like? Does it ring any bells? He brings out bread and wine for, for Abram. He brings out what would become the elements of the communion meal. He blesses Abram. He says, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And what does Abram do? He gives him a tenth of what he has. He gave him, it says he gave him a tithe. What is a tithe? A tithe is not an arbitrary amount. <laughs> say, well, I, people say, well, I, I tithe to the Lord 2%. Well, no, you didn't. <laughs> you gave 2%, but it wasn't a tithe. Amen? Because the word tithe literally means tenth. So, you, so it would, how would it sound if I said, well, I tithed, I, I tenthed 2%. It, 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 it doesn't make sense. Not to 2% milk or something. No, no. A tithe is 10%. And so he gave him a tithe. And, and this is what happens at this meeting with Melchizedek. What does the meeting with Melchizedek show us? The meeting with Melchizedek shows us where the commitment of the Hebrew is. The Hebrew comes to God and the relationship with God is mediated. Now, Paul says that there's only one mediator between God and man, God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who is the God man, right? And so we have relationship with the Father through the Son, and we come to him at the table of the Lord, taking, partaking of the meal, eating of the flesh, drinking of the blood, thereby having eternal life in us, having relationship within us, so that relationship is mediated to us by the priest in the order of Melchizedek, forever a priest, and it is done by Jesus Christ. And so there is a, a pledge of allegiance, a pledge of, com a, 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 a statement of communion, that is made when we come and we meet the Lord at his table. And then the tithe. The tithe is that commitment that says, I give to you, Lord, a tenth of, wit of that which you've given to me. And so the real Hebrew, the real Jew, pledges allegiance to God most high. The question is, who is the real Hebrew? Who is the real Jew? Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, he says this, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's what? You're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. How do you, how do you pledge allegiance to Jesus? A pledge is something that you reconfirm over and over again. In this country, I don't know how widespread we still do this, but there was a day that we would come every day to school and we'd say, pledge allegiance to the flag. There are things that the Lord has given us that are kind of like that. It's kind of like that, and he's given these things into our lives for us to come and say, I pledge allegiance, I pledge my allegiance to the Lord. 
because I'm a person of Eber, I'm of a person of Ebri. I'm a person of the region on the other side. I want to demonstrate to you by the commitment, by the allegiance that I pledge to you, that my home is not this world, that my home is in heaven, and I'm stating to you, and I'm pledging allegiance to you. I'm coming to the table of the Lord. I'm coming and having bread and wine. I'm giving you a tithe of all that you have given me, Lord, and so that I can declare by my, by my life my allegiance to you. And then I am, as Abram was Abram the Hebrew, I am Charles the Hebrew. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll just leave it right there. Let me, let me leave it right here. Let me leave it right here. The last one. You've got the tithe. You've got the table. And what was the other monument of 12 stones? Not the hidden one. This is the hidden one. The other one, baptism. Baptism is actually that open declaration of, who, of, of whose you are. Let me say that again. Baptism is an open declaration of whose you are. And one of my favorite commentators has put it this way, that the, the statement that you make presenting yourself at baptism is actually a statement of open warfare in the heavenlies. Because you have stated by being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit that I have come out from being taken hostage and I have come out and I am set free by the blood of the Lamb and I stand here to be baptized in the name of Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and I declare and as I come up out of the water, it is open warfare against those that would stand against and we call against the, the principalities and powers of this world and, and to be engaged in a battle of souls.